0: Dear congregation of the Lord, have you ever attended any funerals of unbelievers? Or have you ever watched such a funeral on TV? What happened? Usually, people assume that the dead went to heaven. People do not even try to know whether the person lived a godly life on earth. But they suddenly start thinking that a person who hated the Lord throughout his life on earth goes into his blissful presence in heaven. According to you, what makes people think like this. Such thoughts happen because people often have a false view of God's holiness, leading them to a superficial understanding of man's sinfulness. Such false view induces the belief that we deserve salvation simply because we died. And a well-known theologian even coined the expression Salvation by death. In ancient Israel, a similar view was prevailing. People believed that they will go to heaven simply because they were physical descendants of Abraham, formal covenant members. Of course, most of them followed Jewish customs, they were a religious people, and unfortunately for them, that's all that they were, a religious people. In this sermon, we'll name that belief of the Jews, covenantal automatism. Covenantal automatism. Speaking differently, we could say covenantal automatism is the belief that one has a guaranteed place in paradise simply because he is a formal member of the covenant. I repeat, covenantal automatism is the belief that one has a guaranteed place in paradise simply because he is a formal member of the covenant. Jesus warned the Jews of his days against covenantal automatism. And that warning is the object of our text today. So we will seek to understand Jesus' warning and apply it to ourselves. Therefore, it is my privilege to proclaim God's words to you using the following theme. The Lord warns us against covenantal automatism. The Lord warns us against covenantal automatism. Three points support the theme. First, we have a telling question, verses 22 to 23. Then, a warning parable, verses 24 to 30. And finally, our response, which is mainly an application of the warning to our current Situation. First point, a telling question. In verse 22, we read He, meaning Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. It was the custom of faithful Jews to travel regularly to Jerusalem and we remember that the Old Testament even commanded men to journey at least 3 times per year to Jerusalem and uh, speaking of Jesus the gospel of John says that Jesus went to Jerusalem went to Jerusalem at multiple times for various festivals. But unlike John, Luke groups all those travels of Jesus to Jerusalem into a single one, in which Jesus Christ will go to Jerusalem to embrace the cross for the remission of our sins. And in the book of Luke, this journey to Jerusalem starts in Luke 9, verses 51, And there, Luke explains that when the days of the crucifixion were approaching, Jesus resolved to go to Jerusalem. And so from the context of our text, we can understand that our Savior was plowing his way toward the ultimate sacrifice. Also, Luke does not give specific geographical references when describing uh, the travel of Jesus. And this is because he's writing to people outside of Palestine. That's why we read he was just journeying through towns and villages. But in the journey, suddenly something happens. On the way, someone asks him a question. And we do not know who the person is. The text doesn't mention it. But we know that the person asked the question in public. The person asks, Lord, will those who are saved be few? According to you, why should someone ask such a question? Is it Because Jesus was facing much opposition and the people were running away from him? Or is it because his teachings were also very hard and as a consequence, the same thing was happening? People were distancing themselves from him. We do not know exactly why the person asked the question. But one thing that is certain is that the question had a great relevance to the Jews of Jesus' time. From the time of the, the time, from the time between the Old and the New Testament, which is also called the intertestamental period, this question was occupying the Jews. And many rabbis had given different answers to the question. And there were Essentially, two camps, a minority and a majority. The minority believe that only few people will enter the kingdom of heaven, Jews and Gentiles alike. In contrast, the majority believe that all the Jews will enter paradise, except maybe some few gross sinners like uh, the publicans. But that majority also believe that very few Gentiles only will be able to make it to heaven. Now let us pause briefly and and analyze this concern of the Jews. What do we know by experience? We know that by experience we do not wonder about people's salvation when we are not sure of our own. When we are very much unsure and that we are stressed and harassed, harassed by our sins, we do not think about the salvation of other people, we are focused on our own salvation, we think about our eternal destiny, we are compulsively somewhat thinking about it. And so we can infer from this that... The question that the Jews ask show that many of them, especially we can say those of Jesus' time, believe that for the most part Jews will enter paradise. Why did they have such a belief? Why did they all believe that they were entitled somewhat to enter paradise? They had such a belief because they thought that as descendants of Abraham, they had a guaranteed place in heaven. In other words, they were suffering from covenantal automatism. Now, with such a contextual analysis in in mind, please, imagine for a little while the sin. Imagine someone thinking to himself, Now that we have Jesus, the great rabbi, who who preaches with authority and raises the dead, let me ask him the great question. He will certainly have a breakthrough answer that will lay the question to rest. And when Jesus Christ opens his mouth to answer the question, you can imagine a sudden silence gripping the entire crowd because they were all concerned with this question. They, they wanted to know the answer. And as you try to think about the sin there in Jesus' time, you may also wonder and, say to, and think to yourself, but people also nowadays at these times ask a similar question. And it is true. Today we also sometimes wonder about the same thing. And some people are pessimistic. They they think that the future is bleak for the church. And they think that our effort to evangelize unbelievers will always have little success. Therefore, we should prepare somewhat to go underground. Some other people are more optimistic They think that we should evangelize as much as we can and seek to redeem the culture. They think that we will have a breakthrough, a revival at some point. Of course, I have given you the two extremes, and there are many people in between. But you, what do you think about that question? And do you sometimes wonder whether many people will be saved? And what does your position on that question, the question of the breath of salvation, reveal concerning what you think about your own salvation? Or what does your position reveal concerning your thoughts about the future of the covenant people. So far, we have seen the relevance of the questions of the breath of salvation to the Jews of Jesus' time. We have analyzed it and inferred that most of the Jews of Jesus' time were certain that they will enter heaven. Now, what do you think will be The answer, Jesus' answer to the question. Will he answer the question as they expected him to answer? So, let us move to our second point to see Jesus' answer. So, our Lord received the question, and he knows that a sizable part part of his audience suffers from covenantal automatism. So he answers by giving a warning parable. Jesus starts the parable by exhorting his audience to strive to enter through the narrow gate. We know that he addresses the audience because the verb strive in Greek is in the plural. In other words, he's saying Be all striving to enter. But what does strive here mean? The Greek word corresponding to strive carries the imagery of an athletic competition, like the hockey game of yesterday. It's very tough. People have to beat each other, and they, they discipline themselves very hard continuously, they continuously do strenuous efforts, and it needs courage, perseverance. It also, the word strives here also carries the imagery of a battle. The Apostle Paul uses the same words when he exhorts Timothy to fight the good fight of faith in 1 Timothy 6 verses 12. So, we understand that the striving that Jesus speaks about here is a demanding, whole-hearted, continuous effort. He's telling them to strive to enter a door. Of which door does he speak? Verse 28 of our text informs us that it is the door to the place of fellowship with the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So we can infer that the door is the door to paradise, to heaven. And Jesus describes that door as being narrow. What does he mean by narrow? He means that the door is an uninviting door a restrictive door, you cannot move as you wish when you go through that door. It is a difficult door, a door that is unattractive, and the natural person, the natural man, is not inclined to go through that door. And so by using uh, the imagery, Jesus Christ brings to mind the traditional contrast that we sang also in Psalm 1, between the narrow way, which is the way of the righteous, the way of paradise, and the broad way, which is the way of the wicked, but also the way of damnation. In the second sentence of verse 25, 24 please, Jesus tells the people why they should be striving. They should be striving because many people will seek to enter and will not be able. Jesus says that actually many people will be desirous to go to paradise, but they will fail in their search. Why will they fail in their search? They will fail because they will be complacent and ultimately late. Those people were supposed to seek the Lord why he is near, why he may be found. But they had been complacent when salvation was available to them. And they realized the danger of their position only when the house owner rises to close the door. But who is that house owner? Verse 26 informs us that the house owner is Jesus Himself, And this representation of Jesus as the owner of the house is very fitting. The Greek word for owner of the house can also be translated master of the house. So Jesus is the beloved son who rules over the household of God. Continuing the parable, we perceive that the latecomers assume that they belong to the house. So they knock the door, calling the master to open it. They call him Lord. Maybe they imagine that he will be friendly toward them. Imagine, for example, some people who think that they are welcome at a celebration. And when they arrive, the door is locked. You can imagine them a bit frustrated, but they say to themselves, ah, things happen. This kind of thing sometimes happen. Soon, our friend, the master, will come and open the door to us. And so you can picture how they are very much surprised. They, they, they are almost frozen when the master of the house said to them, I do not know you, I do not know where you come from. Maybe for a while, you can imagine them a bit in denial. And they may be thinking, oh, maybe we didn't hear him properly. And then they start saying, how can you say that you do not know us? We spent time in your presence. We ate and drank in your presence. And you preach in our streets. But the Master answered again, this time with greater emphasis I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from from me, all you workers of lawlessness. Let us sing together, congregation. Here, who is telling the truth? Is the Master. Telling the truth when he says that he doesn't know them? Or are the latecomers right when they say that they know him? But I think that both parties are telling the truth. The latecomers fail to understand the master's language, they do not understand that the master is not speaking of near acquaintance. When the master says that he does not know where they are coming from, they think that the master is speaking of the geographical origin. But the master here is speaking of the spiritual origin. He is saying that the latecomers do not belong in his people. They are workers of iniquity, unregenerated people. True, they knew the master, but only superficially. In other words, they had some information about him. They knew about the master. But such an acquaintance only increases their condemnation because they had the privilege of hearing him preach and eating with him. But all that they did was to develop a superficial relationship. They were not interested at all in obeying him, in remaining watchful and prayerful. Their late coming as we see in the text, was just the last manifestation of their rebellion. Now, we wonder, since they do not belong in the house of Jesus, where do they belong? The master assigned them to their proper place, the darkness. It is a place far from the Lord, a place of utter misery. Heart-wrenching sorrows, maddening frustration, and rebellious anger. It is a place where those who are tormented have their smoke rising day and night without ceasing. And their worms do not die. That place is hell. It is the place where the master assigns them. And as if the sufferings of hell were not enough, the master said that the late comers will be allowed to see his house bliss, the bliss of the people in his house. But only from afar. They will see the patriarch, the prophet, and all those hero, heroes of faith with whom they had been identifying themselves. But without the hope of ever joining them, of ever enjoying the celebration that's happening. Why? Because God will be himself hostile toward them. This is galling. But as if this was not galling enough, the master said that the Gentiles, the hated and despised, uncircumcised, will be gathered from all over the earth to celebrate in the kingdom. And in contrast, those who all their life long thought that they were children of heaven will be expelled, cast out. What a sad reversal. Jesus the master concluded the story by referring again to that reversal when he says that some who are first will be last and some who are last will be first. Who are the first? The first are the people of the covenant. The people who had the benefit of hearing him preach. They were under the word regularly. Unfortunately, some among the first, they we start feeling as, Entitled because of their position as member of the covenant, or even because of their works, their participation, their activities in the kingdom. And as a consequence, what happened to those people? They stopped setting their hope on Christ. And they show that they were never regenerated to believe with, and they are cast out. And who are the last? The last are those outside of the kingdom, those who were far away, outside of the commonwealth of Israel, without God and hope in the world. And those people, one day, by God's grace, they hear the gospel, and by the activity of the Holy Spirit in their heart, they repent and they receive salvation. So, we have heard a warning the warning parable that Jesus Christ gave as an answer to the question that was asked to him. We saw that Jesus did not take a camp. He didn't take the camp of the minority or the majority who believed different things some that many people will be saved, many Jews, and some only few Jews. He was neither optimistic nor pessimistic. In essence, Jesus answered the presupposition underlying the question. He said, it does, he said that it does not matter how many to, to us, please, it does not matter to us how many people do not, will not enter paradise. And he's saying, do not be complacent. Be constantly working yourself to make your calling an election, sure, lest you be deeply disappointed on judgment day. Now that we know the answer of Jesus, what do we do with it? What do we do with the warning that he gave? Jesus spoke to Jews and we are Gentiles all of us. So how do we apply the warning that he gave? And so that application will be our third point. So let us remember that all scripture, as the Apostle Paul says, was written for our edification so that we might have hope through encouragement and patience. But To enter in possession of that hope we must do two things. First, we must understand scripture in its context. And second, we must bridge the gap existing between our context and the context of 2,000 years ago. We have covered the context of 2,000 years ago. so we know that we understand it. So now we have to bridge the gap. How will we go about it? So let us start by making some doctrinal clarifications and then apply the warning to our prison karnasi context. We read in verse 24 of our text, That Jesus saying that many will seek to enter into the kingdom, but will not be able to enter. And this statement of Jesus prompts us to wonder, is Jesus saying that we can contribute to our salvation by working hard? Is it what the text is about, just work harder for your salvation? Is Jesus saying that the natural man can by himself seek God? No, no, Jesus is not suggesting that we contribute anything to our salvation. Jesus himself says in John 15 verse 16 that we have not chosen him, but he chose us. And the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3 that no one seeks after God, no one. So, Scripture, being the word of God, cannot contradict itself. When the Apostle Paul says that no one seeks after God, he says that no one truly seeks after God. Many people want to worship God in their own ways. Some want to worship the God of their own imagination. Others do not want to trust in Jesus Christ alone. They want to trust to add a part of their own works into their salvation. And if we seek God in those ways, we are only apparent seekers of God. Nearly religious people like those Jews and possibly supporters of covenantal automatism. And this is the kind of person about whom Jesus is speaking when he says that such people will seek God, but without success. Furthermore, exhorting people to strive does not of necessity imply that salvation is by work. In Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13, as we read, we read, the scriptures please exhort us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For, very much important, for it is God who works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And in response to the word, the Canons of God, chapters 3 and 4, verse 12, confess that regeneration is the work of God alone. But regeneration is also miraculously powerful. God not only acts upon our minds and hearts and renews our will, but our will itself, upon, after the renewal, starts acting as a consequence of God's word. It starts acting on its own in the direction of heaven. So that's why we can rightly say that a man believes and repents. So we are the one doing the repenting. We are the one doing the obedience. But we do so as instruments in the hand of God. We do so under the work of the Holy Spirit. In summary, Jesus is not preaching salvation by works. He's preaching salvation by grace alone through faith by emphasizing that those truly saved manifest the fruit of regeneration through the constant pursuit of holiness. From beginning to end, it is the work of God, but it is impossible, as the catechism says, for those whom God is working upon, those grafted in Christ, it is impossible for them not to bear fruit. So, those that God regenerates, he also sanctifies. So now that our doctrinal understanding of the text is correct, let us see how it speaks to us. The Jews were physical descendants of Abraham. They were the people of the covenant. Like them, we too are people of the covenant. And Jews face, throughout the history, the temptation of covenantal automatism. Many of them assume that because of their privilege, of their privileged status as descendant of the patriarch, they had a guaranteed entrance into paradise. Likewise, many of us also today exhibit the symptoms of covenantal automatism. We think that we have a guaranteed place, a guaranteed entrance into the kingdom simply because we were born in the covenant. Sure, we are set apart because we receive the preaching of the word and we are sanctified by it. And we belong to congregations to which the Lord made promises of salvation as our formula of baptism tells us. But those promises come with obligations. It's a package. In other words, we must reckon that the covenant is conditional. Even if Christ fulfills the conditions for us. Again, the covenant is conditional. And if we fail to reckon with it, all those privileges can turn into our condemnation. Just like for those people in our text. And we reach, and and please, we, we risk finding ourselves among the covenant children expelled on the last day. But now the question is how do we reckon in practice that the covenant is conditional? We do so by trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. What does that mean? It means that if you rely on anything else for your salvation, you are in danger of being cast out in the last day. And genuine trust in Christ is not mere it's not a mere intellectual accept, acceptance. It has practical implications such as embracing all that God has promised to us in the gospel. And such an embrace manifests itself as a belief in the correct doctrines. You must believe the right thing. But that belief in the right thing must be also accompanied by a deep love for God, for Christ, which will give you the desire, the motivation to glorify him in whatever you do. Those who trust in Christ in that way are trusting in Christ genuinely, deeply, intimately. And those people can do so because they have been grafted into Christ by true faith. So, my dear people, let us pray God. Let us pray that he may open our hearts to grow in gratefulness for all the privileges that we have as members of the covenant. Let us pray that from that gratefulness may overflow a constant deepening of our relationship with Christ. So how do we conclude this sermon? So this is the sum of all that we have said. Jesus is saying to us, let us not worry about how many people will enter paradise. Let us worry instead about the temptation of covenantal automatism, the temptation of relying on something other than Christ. Let us pray that our Heavenly Father may incline our hearts to hearken the warnings of the Son, Jesus. Let us pray that the Holy Spirit, for the Son's sake, may set our hearts ablaze with love and gratefulness for all the privilege that we have received. Let us pray that out of that gratefulness, we may be continuously striving to enter through the narrow gate. Amen.